just take you back to that time and, and tell me what you remember and clarity that you remember things. Yeah. Um, well, I can remember very clearly how good a person Mary and how loyal he was as an employee. A uh, very hard worker. Uh, he worked, I can't remember exactly how long he worked for me. I've known him for years. Uh, he worked for me one time and then I think he took off some time and uh, worked, come back to work again, if I remember correctly. But uh, I remember when uh, uh, a month or two prior to, the, to his death, he was trying to, he was having trouble with his She had left him and uh, he was having to deal with taking the babysitter every morning and having to <coughs> go home and feed him and he was trying to be a good parent. He was taking care of his You know, he was going home every night and picking them up. And, uh, he had told me, uh, could have been a week or two or a month, prior to his death that uh, his moved in down the street with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend had been in prison and she'd been writing she'd been writing uh, letters. Well I guess he got out of prison and moved back in with his dad down the road. So Connie moved in with him. I might have the timing off a little bit but uh, she moved in with him and he got to talking to her over a period of time and she started coming down every day and watching he wouldn't have to take her to a baby show. And then he'd, he'd come to me one day and said that he's working on her and he's thinking that she's going to move back in to help take care of the kid. And a week or so goes by. I mean, I didn't talk to him about this every day. We worked and I wasn't out on a job with him all the time. Mm -hmm. So whenever I got around him, he would, you know, he would talk to him. So he told me that he, he, he's got her convinced into moving back in. And uh, a short time went by and uh, this one particular day, he was, we were finishing concrete and he wasn't feeling real good and uh, he said he was gonna, he had to go home and uh, things weren't right with him and Connie and if, if any problems ever occurred, that if something happened, it would be her or her boyfriend. And that's all he told me. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's the night, the last time I seen him, or if it was a night or two prior to that, but for some reason it was right there, either the night before he died or a few days before he died. He left late one night, and uh, he had told me that he told his mother, he might even ask her, that if anything happened to him, that it would be Connie and her boyfriend doing it. And that's a, that's a swear statement, and I don't know what he meant by that, but he said things don't look good. Yeah, I guess him and Connie had started fighting. I think she wanted to move back out or something. I don't know. So she had moved back in at this time. And she had moved back in. She was in for maybe, it could have been a month or so that she had been living there. I mean, we're talking about 20-something years ago. And, and I remember him very clearly telling me that he was trying to talk her into moving back in to help take care of the it was very hard on him to have to get him up and take him early in the morning to a babysitter. So he had he conned her into coming down and taking care of him for him at the house. And then eventually he got her talked into coming back. Okay. And that didn't last very long. Uh, then of course we got the news 
I got the news on the morning. Uh, I'm not sure of the date, but that morning I was getting ready to leave the house, and my secretary called me and wanted to know if I'd heard from him or if anybody on the job knew if he was there. And of course I told her I had no way of knowing I'm not there and uh, I'd have to go to that job to see if he was there that a couple of the other fellows were supposed to be getting ready to pour concrete. Evidently called and said that uh, he had went hunting that night and didn't return and wanted to know if he'd come to work the next morning. So uh, right away I started wondering, thinking what happened. And uh, of course, I went on into work, and we got the news later that they found him out there in the water. Investigators often rely on the premise that years after a case goes cold, people may be more comfortable talking about what they know. Sometimes people don't realize they have important information, because in the early days of an investigation, police tend to keep most of the facts to themselves. And all the public gets is what's in quick TV news spots or newspapers. When you don't have enough pieces to the puzzle, it's hard to know which ones fit. And citizens are often hesitant to bother law enforcement with what they feel is not significantly related to the crime being investigated. As an example, in this case, in August of 1989, nine years after Merritt Wheeler's homicide, a detective met with Claude and Rexana Smith. They thought they might have some information that was relevant. About nine months earlier, they had seen Connie's brother Pete at a farm store in Port Charlotte, Florida. At that time, he told them he was going to get the people responsible for him going to prison and do to them what he'd done to merit. Rexana's brother James was badly beaten. Now, James lived with Connie Wheeler for six or seven years after Merritt's death and about a week before Claude and Rexana Smith met with detectives in 89, James was living in Connie's trailer after he and Connie had separated and Connie moved into town. Pete Duell and an unknown male came to that trailer and attacked James with a baseball bat. James said that Pete threatened him that if he didn't get out of the trailer, the same thing that happened to Merritt was going to happen to him. James was able to flee to his father's house in the same neighborhood and then seek medical attention. Rexana, his sister, also heard that Pete and this unknown male had gone to Chucky Bennett's house after the attack and were bragging about the beating that they gave James. The use of a baseball bat stands out because, as you may recall, that's the weapon that Pete allegedly told his fellow inmate that he had used on Merritt after he had lured him outside. It was one of the details that the inmate included in that letter that he sent to the sheriff's department. Despite what one of Ava Ford's boys had said when he spoke with Kurt Siver about how police had pushed Merritt's case aside and forgotten about it, the fact was that multiple investigators picked up the case and checked into it over the years. In 2005, Connie was questioned again. She still lived on the same property that she and Merritt had shared in Arcadia, but the mobile home that they lived in had burned down and had since been replaced. At that time, Connie told investigators that the years had taken their toll on her and she didn't remember a lot of things. She still denied knowing who killed Merritt and thought that he had encountered someone that night 
who killed him for some unknown reason. She continued to say that Merritt left to go hunting, and when he hadn't returned by morning, she thought that he had been caught poaching or was hiding from law enforcement. When the investigator asked her directly if she thought Frankie Lamar or her brother Pete had killed him, she said she didn't know, but they wouldn't have told her about it if they did. Willie Lamar's former wife, Carolyn, who had lived with him across the street at the time of the murder and was a friend of Connie's, also spoke again with police. She dropped a couple little bombs in this interview, the first being that when she and Willie were separated for a short time, around the time that Merritt was killed, her house had burned down. And that's when she moved back in with Willie. Carolyn said that several years after Merritt's murder, Willie Lamar was in the hospital in Gainesville, and at that time he thought he was about to die. So he made a number of deathbed confessions, including admitting that he and his son Frankie had burned down her house. While he was in the hospital, Carolyn said that Willie also told her that Frankie and Pete Duell, Connie's brother, had ambushed Merritt while he was having sex with Connie that night. He didn't tell Carolyn what they killed him with, but Willie did say that one of the children had awakened that night and seen something to do with the crime. Now this tends to align with the younger son's initial interviews, when he told police that he awoke to the sound of vomiting and he was scared. It occurs to me that the guttural sounds of being hit and coughing could be mistaken for vomiting. But I also think that there was a bug going around. Remember when Willie had said during one of his interviews that Frankie had called off sick from work one day, vomiting with, quote, his bowels running off? Also, multiple people, including his son, said that Merritt had not been feeling well and he'd been sick for a couple weeks. And Connie herself said that it was her that was throwing up, but it was the night before. Now, if we look at that single piece of evidence and assign the most favorable reading of it to Connie, that part could be true. Her son could have been mistaken about which night he was awakened by the sound of her vomiting. But, Willie Lamar telling his wife while in the hospital that one of the children had woken up and seen something, that's not something that he should have known, unless someone else there that night had told him so, or he was there himself. The thing is, there's nothing in the report pages that I received to suggest that police found any evidence of something occurring inside the house. But that's not saying much because there's not a single report in the file that I received about when or how any search of the Wheeler home was conducted. The investigator did ask Connie if they could search the Wheeler house during her very first interview, and she said that they could. And in one of his interviews, Deputy Dan alluded to a search of the house, asking Frankie Lamar something to the effect of, what do you think I was doing out there looking and looking, referring to Connie's house. Unfortunately, I received no documentation about what, if anything, they did find. If what Willie Lamar said during this alleged deathbed confession is true, and the attack began inside the house, well, that would certainly mean that Connie would have to know what happened and who was responsible, meaning that she had lied about Merritt going hunting. One other thing that Carolyn told investigators is that she had heard Pete say that he wished Merritt was dead. Now, the neighbor named Chucky Bennett, who was mentioned as having known about Pete beating up 
Connie's boyfriend James. He was someone who Pete hung out with and was interviewed again during this reinvestigation. He said that he had heard over the years that either Pete alone or with Frankie had killed Merritt. He also said that he was present when Merritt gave Pete that beatdown after he had stolen his truck. At that time, Pete lived in a trailer on Chucky Bennett's property, and Merritt had come over, dragged Pete out of the trailer, and beat his ass right there in the front yard. Investigators tracked down Chucky's brother and spoke to him, and in this short and not very productive interview, you'll get a sense of how hard it was to get information from those close to Pete Duell. Clearly, people were not comfortable talking about what they knew. Come on now. I don't know no more than anybody else knows, and that's nothing. I'm on my way to work no more. At Monday morning, he's probably seen his truck down there, and he, he always parked in weird places anyway, you know. So we just got, we were carpooling. I, I couldn't stop. Right. I, wasn't, I wasn't driving the truck, you know. So we just went up with work at T.A. Fordberg in Port Charlotte. And we got there, it was about six of us riding together, and me and my brother, Charles Bennett, he, he was with us, one of them. And, you know, like I said, we didn't think nothing of it, you know. And, and that afternoon, we got off work, and we found out that uh, somebody, you know, had to went down there and killed us. I don't have no idea how it happened, but, you right. know, that's all I know, you know, so. I've heard a million stories about how he got killed and who did it, who might have did it. I mean, I mean, it, it, it could be anybody. I don't know, you know. Right. But. His brother-in-law, Pete, might have did it, and his old lady might have did it. And, I mean, they all kind of fought back and forth between each other because, we, like I say, we live right next door to them. Right, I understand. And, Pete got know, beat up at your house once. Yeah, he, I kind of, kind of got up and out of the house, and they, uh, all I was doing was bringing Pete out the back right front door. Because he, he, like I said, he he got he always just grabbed one. He took his truck off and out and wrecked it, you know. And, and I, I, I tell you about beat his ass, too. Yeah, if he stole my truck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he had to go, you know. And he just had two nights, two new tires, some summer truck, and he flattened one of them. And, I mean, they flattened, I believe, it was, I don't know, one, one of the front new tires on his truck. <laughs> I don't know what really made him mad. And he, he, and he uh, when he done that, when he wrecked the truck, he put it in a ditch. And uh, he got the truck back to the house, same night, but fenders all smashed in and all that good crap. He couldn't, the man couldn't drive a truck, you know. Right. I was mad, too. <laughs> so now, so now, Pete, he wasn't up in the seat anyway. He didn't want to say who did it or, or, who, or anybody did it, you know. But, uh-huh. but he, he, you know, he never bragged about, so I'm going to kill the old SOB one these days. I never, you know, I can't say that because, you know, he was, he was crazy, you know. I mean, you know, you agree on that. But as far as Pete, you know, he, uh, I, don't, I don't think it had anything to do with himself. I don't think he was that crazy. He's done a lot of stuff to him, but, you know, I don't know what happened. I really don't, you know. Mm-hmm. All I know, I remember just sending the truck down there to work. Picked that Monday morning about, uh, went through there about 6.30, I guess it was, so I had to be working at 7. Okay. And like I said, we didn't pay no attention about it. And then when everybody found out that, everybody, you know, news travels pretty quick, you know, in Arcadia. I never knew who or why, but, you know. Right. Or saying, yeah, he did it, and now I can't say that. Uh, I heard several people did it. I heard Connie had something to do with it. You know, then you like to say, you know, like these people talk, you know. I don't know. I say, yeah, she did it. I, I can't say, yeah, I can't say, no, she did do it. I don't know. Right. 
Yeah, I like I like them find out who did it too. You know, just 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 for curiosity. You know, everybody wants to know who did it, and everybody wants it solved, but doesn't nobody want to get involved. So you know, I mean that's. Because they're scared of him. Yeah, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. That could be that could be true too, you know. I mean, but uh, well, like I say, I wish I could really help you, but mm-hmm. I can't. My hands are tied, cause I don't, I don't, I can't tell you anymore what I told you. Frankie Lamar was interviewed again in February of 2006, 26 years after Merritt Wheeler's murder. At the time, he was in Bostick State Prison in Hardwick, Georgia. He denied being in any way responsible for Merritt's death and he said he didn't know who killed him. He claimed that he was home at his father's house on the night in question. Frankie did corroborate what another witness had said about Merritt once introducing him to a friend of his by saying, This is my wife's boyfriend. Frankie said that this was after Connie had returned home, and he and Merritt were friends again, which would make this incident pretty damn close in time to when the homicide occurred. The investigator showed Frankie the shirt that had been found in Merritt's truck, the one that multiple witnesses said was his, and he said he remembered being questioned extensively about it right after the murder, but he didn't remember the shirt being his. Frankie said that he vaguely remembered someone named Pete, but they weren't friends, and he didn't know much about him. When the investigator identified him as Connie's brother, Frankie said he did recall a brother being around, but couldn't remember much about him, other than hearing that Connie and her brother were tight. He went on to say that Connie was very manipulative of men, but that she had never told him anything about any knowledge she had of who killed her husband, nor did she implicate her brother in any way. Connie's brother Pete was also questioned in 2006. This occurred at a jail facility in Clayton, Missouri, where he was serving a short sentence for violation of probation. Pete immediately denied any involvement and pointed out that he had been questioned several times after the arrest. I can't confirm that because I wasn't provided a single copy of any of Pete's interviews if he was. Pete said that he had lived with Connie since he was 14 or 15 years old until his arrest in April of 1980, which would have been six months before Merritt's murder, for fleeing in a stolen car. He lived in Sarasota, Florida for a while, and he said that he had been staying with a friend in Fort Myers when Merritt was killed. Here I will just remind you that Fort Myers is where our letter writer slash friendly inmate said that Pete had stolen that motorcycle he mentioned in the letter and that he had ridden back there on the motorcycle that night after murdering Merritt. It's just another detail that had to have been told to the letter writer by someone who had intimate knowledge of the crime. Pete told the investigator that a couple days after the murder, he went to Arcadia to see what was going on after either Connie or his sister Veronica told him what happened. He said that by the time he got back into town, Connie was already in Pompano Beach with their sister. At that time, Pete said he ended up hiding out in the woods across from David Perry's house to avoid law enforcement, because at that time he also had an active violation of probation warrant out for him. At this point, the investigator questioned Pete about those boots that they found in the woods. Pete confirmed that the boots found at his campsite were Merritt's, but he insisted that they'd been taken from the Wheeler house after the murder. He said that he was riding a stolen motorcycle at the time, and the boots helped protect his ankles. He said someone must have turned him in because law enforcement ended up chasing and catching him a few days after he arrived in Arcadia. 
When he was pressed on the physical altercations between he and Merritt, Pete said that he'd been a punk kid who was always doing something wrong. He said yes, Merritt had beat him with a belt while he was on the ground, and that had happened to him several times. But Pete insisted that Merritt was like a father to him, and so he punished him like a father would. He said the beatings were never too severe, and he never had any bruises or broken bones. Certainly nothing to kill someone over. When the investigator told Pete what Connie had told them about Merritt going hunting around 11 p.m. on the night he was killed, the investigator noted that Pete appeared surprised and admitted that was something he'd never known Merritt to do. He said he didn't want to get Connie into trouble, but he believed that she was being dishonest about what happened that night for some reason. He said when he first heard that Merritt had been found in his underwear, he immediately suspected that he'd been killed at home because it was common for Merritt to go outside in his underwear. And you'll recall that Connie herself said that wasn't the case. So Pete said that when he first went back to the house after the murder, he himself looked around the front yard for any signs of an altercation that may have taken place there, but he didn't find anything. It's interesting because this is Pete putting himself in the yard where police believe the initial attack occurred right after the homicide, even though Connie was telling police that she hadn't spoken to her brother during this time frame and then eventually admitted that she lied about that. Also, the fact that the investigator said Pete appeared surprised is kind of entertaining, but he wouldn't have been surprised by that information. It was not only common knowledge at the time by the locals, it was in the newspaper. And Pete's buddy, the inmate, said in the letter that Pete told him, quote, the excuse his wife gave police was that he went hunting that Sunday night. Pete stated to me if police would have investigated a little more, they would have found out he never went hunting on Sunday night because he always had to work on Monday mornings about 4 a.m. By the way, the letter writer got the day of the week wrong. It was Monday night, not Sunday night. When he was asked, Pete admitted to beating James, Connie's boyfriend, but he denied using anything but his fists. He said he may have even implied that he had killed Merritt by telling James he could end up like him if he didn't move out of his sister's house. Pete also denied telling any prison inmate that he had killed Merritt. Then the investigator asked Pete, Well, what have you heard about the murder? And he said he had heard that Merritt was found only in his underwear, with the back of his skull crushed in. He heard Merritt's truck was there, and there were motorcycle tracks on the ground, which is what made him look guilty because he was riding a stolen motorcycle at the time. Pete, by the way, is the only person who mentions motorcycle tracks on the ground at the scene in this entire report. Now, it might have been mentioned to him by investigators during any questioning of him that they did, but no tracks at all are mentioned by Deputy Dan in his initial assessment of the scene when he described the blood that was noted and where the body was found and the condition of the truck. Tracks at the scene are also not mentioned by any of the follow-up investigators, at least in the documents that I was provided. Not vehicle tracks, not foot tracks. Remember how David Perry mentioned not seeing any vehicle tracks or footprints down there at the scene when he found Merritt? Well, in at least one news article that I read, written in March of 1981, four months after Merritt was killed, 
I got my first inkling that it's possible there may have been some issues with the Wheeler investigation and with the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office at the time. In an article titled DeSoto Officials Picking Up Pieces of Unsolved Murder, the reader learns that not only are, quote, officials no closer to solving this murder than when Merritt was pulled from the chilly waters of Horse Creek four months earlier, we're also told that Deputy Dan appears to have jumped the gun with all of his grand jury talk. The new sheriff, Robert Thomas, who'd inherited the case when he took office that January, said that any talk of a grand jury was premature. Sheriff Thomas told reporters that the previous investigation was mishandled under the former administration, quote, proper investigative techniques were not followed and the chief investigator was changed on the case three times. So, yeah, the lead investigator being changed three times in four months, that is no bueno. But that's nothing compared to what came next. Three months after that article, another appeared with a first line that would have made any Southern news editor proud. Quote, Things here in Arcadia have built up like a pot of boiling grits. That line was written by the DeSoto County prosecutor in a letter to his boss, Ronald Wilkes, just days before he resigned, stating that he could not put up with the monkey business, his words, in the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office. Wilkes said that he didn't have much confidence in his boss or the new sheriff. Cue the tumbleweeds and the Western showdown music. The governor at the time, Bob Graham, was asked by the state attorney to investigate allegations made by Wilkes about the sheriff's department. The allegations were that deputies had made an improper arrest on marijuana charges in which the person arrested was given drugs by a sheriff's department informant and set up to be arrested. Also that a deputy had lied in a sworn statement about that incident, as well as lied in multiple sworn statements he gave to obtain search warrants. Wilkes had previously tried, he said, to alert the new sheriff, but no action was taken, and that is what prompted him to resign. He had also taken the information to the state attorney, who then asked him quietly to close the case by releasing the man from jail after 40 days without informing the man's attorney or the judge of the false sworn statements or the setup. So, yeah, again, that's a big no bueno. Wilkes said that the state attorney later relented and the man's attorney and the judge were informed about what happened, but only after several phone conversations where the state attorney threatened him with the loss of his job. Feigning innocence, the state attorney responded to this, saying, when he asked him if he liked his job, he meant it literally, not as a threat. So, yes, a pot of boiling grits is a charming way of saying that the DeSoto County Sheriff's Department and apparently the state attorney's office, was a hot dumpster fire of sketchy shenanigans at that time, and it seems as though Merritt Wheeler's case may have suffered for it. Because the deputy in question, who did all that lying and setting people up, was none other than our deputy Dan. When this all came out behind the scenes, he was first placed on close supervision, whatever the hell that means, and then shortly thereafter, presumably when word started to trickle out past that pot of boiling grits and into the public sphere, Deputy Dan was suspended 
pending the results of the investigation, and eventually he was fired. Unfortunately, the 2006 investigation into Merritt's case also fizzled. Connie Wheeler would die two years later in 2008. But the little investigation that could soldiered on for another decade. In 2016, almost a decade after the last try, Merritt Wheeler's case was assigned to the DeSoto County Criminal Investigations Division. And at the very beginning of that report, Connie's brother Pete is listed as their suspect. The initial narrative of the new investigator begins with the following summary, and it's helpful because it tells us what police believe occurred and what that's based on. The victim was beaten severely with a blunt instrument. Most of the strikes were to the front and back of his head, resulting in several fractures. It is believed the night before the discovery of the victim, he was ambushed at his residence. The scene suggests the victim was beaten outside of his Ford pickup truck, then transported to where he was found and additionally beaten inside the truck. This is supported by crime scene photos that depict the blood patterns in the vehicle. The prime suspect, Ronald Pete Duell, was 21 years of age at the time. He was the brother-in-law of the victim and resided on the same property as the victim. He quickly became a suspect. It should be noted that this homicide has been investigated by several detectives over the past 37 years. Over time, initial circumstantial evidence was developed through witness interviews. During the new investigation in 2016, that inmate who wrote the letter about what Pete had allegedly told him was interviewed. The investigator was unable to verify whether anyone had even interviewed the man before, and that would be fairly shocking to me if they hadn't, because this guy came forward with that letter just months after that homicide. But unfortunately, that was right around the time all the nonsense was happening with Deputy Dan and the new sheriff and the prosecutor. The former inmate did recall being in prison in the state of Florida, but he couldn't recall writing the letter or speaking with Pete Duell about the murder. I want to say that when he was questioned in 2016 about those incidents 36 years earlier, the man was 86 years old, so it's entirely possible that he did not remember writing the letter or any of the events surrounding it. This is a good illustration of what happens with decades-old cases. Witnesses die, as do memories, and it becomes harder and harder as the years pass to put together a case with good witnesses who can take the stand. But they kept trying. Pete Duell, in 2016, 10 years after the last time that they had spoke with him, was now in prison in Missouri. Old Pete, by the way, he's got a very long rap sheet, including sexual offenses. He never stopped committing crimes, and he committed them in multiple states. An investigator contacted the Missouri Attorney General's office and obtained help getting recorded phone calls of Pete's from prison. He monitored them for about a month, and during one of these calls, Pete discussed the fact that while in prison in Florida, he had admitted to an inmate that he killed Merritt Wheeler. That is a great new piece of evidence, because there were a lot of probative details in that letter. The investigator then contacted Claude Smith Jr., You'll remember him as the guy who had run into Pete eight years after the murder at the farm store, and he threatened to get the people responsible for him going to prison. Connie lived with his brother-in-law, James, 
and he and his wife had gone to police after he was beaten badly by Pete. At this time, Claude Smith recalled that while Pete was bragging after the murder, he had said that both he and Connie had brought Merritt down there and got rid of him. He told police that he and his wife, they didn't say anything all those years ago because they didn't know if Pete was telling the truth or not. Unfortunately, the new investigator couldn't speak to James because by then he was also deceased. But they did speak with James's father, who said that Pete and someone named Rocky Albrighton had beat James with a baseball bat. Albrighton held him down while Pete beat him. James told his father that Connie said her brother Pete was the one who killed her husband. After his son's beating, James's dad had run into Pete, and at that time, Pete threatened to beat him like he had his son if he ever said anything. Boom. More new information. Which goes to Pete's motive for threatening James and his family. It was because of what they knew. Connie herself had told them that Pete killed Merritt, so it looks like that beatdown of James wasn't necessarily just to get him out of Connie's house. That beatdown was a warning. Keep your mouth shut. In 2016, investigators also caught up with Frankie Lamar again. Frankie did tell investigators he had been in Merritt's truck several times, even that Sunday night because they had all gone hog hunting, and he positively identified the boots in evidence as the same pair that Pete had in his tent. At the beginning of this interview, something very interesting happened. Frankie Lamar said that the night of the murder, he and Pete and Connie were out by Pete's tent, smoking pot. Then he immediately recanted and said, oh no, it was two nights before, two nights before the homicide that they were all out there smoking pot together. You'll recall that he, in his last interview, had denied really even knowing Pete, distancing himself from him as he'd done on other occasions, saying that he only had contact with him from time to time. Also, let's remember that two nights before in our timeline would be Sunday night, the night Willie Lamar had dinner with Connie and Merritt, and the day that Merritt and Frankie went hog hunting together. Pete was already persona non grata by then. Merritt had already banished Pete from the property. So, is Frankie suggesting that he and Connie and Pete were all sitting around smoking pot that night after Merritt was asleep? And if that's the case, whether it was two nights before or one night before, and not a single one of them bothered to mention this to police in any of their subsequent interviews, that the three of them were sitting around smoking pot while Merritt slept inside the house? One has to wonder what the topic of conversation was at that little soiree. At the end of that 2016 report, it reads, quote, Based on the foregoing facts, it is probable that Pete Duell did kill Merritt Wheeler. The following list of bullet points is what the investigator believed gave them probable cause to arrest Pete Duell. Claude Smith Jr. recalled Pete Duell bragging to him shortly after the murder, stating, Connie Wheeler and I brought him down to Horse Creek and got rid of him. Neil Berg sent a letter shortly after this homicide to the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office. In the letter, he states that Pete Duell confessed to the above murder. He would not recall writing the above letter nor speaking with Pete Duell about the murder, but it was verified that Neil Berg and Pete Duell were in the Florida Department of Prison System during the same time period. 
in one of the monitored phone calls from Pete Duell's prison, he discusses admitting to an inmate when he was in a Florida prison that he committed the above murder. The father of James Allen explained that Connie Wheeler told him that Pete Duell killed Merritt Wheeler and shortly after, James was beaten and Pete threatened to beat his father like he beat James if he ever said anything. Perry Hoff recalled the victim telling him that if anything ever happened to him, it would be Connie Wheeler. In a statement provided by David Perry, he said he knew something was wrong because Merritt would always hide his truck when he would go hunting and there was no way he would have parked his truck where the truck was found. Following the murder, a pair of boots were located that belonged to the victim at Pete Duell's campsite. There was a lot of blood on the inside of the boots. Pete Duell later admitted to detectives that he did in fact steal the victim's boots. Henry and Ava Ford were aware that Pete Duell had a campsite on their property. She knew the boots and the knife found at the campsite belonged to Merritt Wheeler, as she had seen them in his possession several times. Frank Lamar's sister said Frank told her that Pete Duell got a good deal out of the murder because he got Merritt's boots. Carolyn said Willie Lamar told her right before he died that Frankie Lamar and Pete Duell killed Merritt Wheeler. He told her that he and his wife were in bed and they snuck into the home. In a statement from Frank Lamar, shortly after the murder, he recalled seeing a nice pair of boots in Pete Duell's tent. I showed him a photo of these boots and he positively identified them as the same pair of boots Pete Duell had. This information is being forwarded to the state attorney's office for consideration for the issuance of an arrest warrant for Pete Duell for the crimes of kidnapping and murder. Unfortunately, it appears that the state attorney's office declined to prosecute. Perhaps they didn't feel they had enough to meet their burden and overcome reasonable doubt in front of a jury. One thing's for sure, Merritt Wheeler has still never gotten justice. And that is why I wanted to do this podcast. I think there might still be people out there who have pertinent information. Stay tuned.